Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to another episode of the Poetry Channel here. Um, I'm Megan Wildhood, and I have with me um, a writer. Um, I'm going to uh, read her bio, and I'm going to introduce her, and we're going to have a uh, conversation about uh, the book called As Long As I Know You, um, the mom book. It has uh, so many um, parallels to everything uh, that, uh, even things that I haven't personally experienced, I think there's just so much that readers can find in this book. So I'm pleased to welcome Anne-Marie Oman to this channel. Anne-Marie Oman's book, As Long As I Know You, The Mom Book, won AWP's Sue Williams Silverman Nonfiction Award out of the University uh, University of Georgia Press um, in 2022, uh, forthcoming, The Long Fields from Cornerstone. Uh, and we will give a little teaser to that one. Um, and she will probably be back on this channel to talk about that book. Um, other titles include The Lake Michigan Mermaid with poet Linda Nemec Foster, who will also be on this channel, Michigan Notable Book 2019, Love, Sex, and 4-H, Next Generation Indie Award for Memoir, Pulling Down the Barn, and House of Fields, also a Michigan notable book, all focused on rural culture, also an American map, essays, and a collection of poetry, Uncoded Woman, Milkweed Editions. She edited Elemental, a collection of Michigan nonfiction, Michigan notable books, and Looking Over My Shoulder, Reflections on the 20th Century, a Michigan Humanities Council project. She's written seven plays, including award-winning Northern Bells, inspired by oral histories of women farmers, and Secrets of Lucy Talk Tavern, winner of the CTAM contest. She is founding editor of Dunes Review, <clears throat> excuse me, former president of Michigan Writers and serves as instructor at Solstice MFA in creative writing at Lassell University, Massachusetts, and at Interlochen College of Creative Arts. She appears at conferences throughout the country. She and her husband, David Early, built their own home on wild acreage near Empire, Michigan, and their beloved Lake Michigan. So Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining me and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to be here. And I just think this new endeavor, Megan, is so exciting and I'm excited for you. And I'm, I'm delighted to hear that my um, co-writer in Lake Michigan Mermaid is also going to be interviewed, Linda Nemec Foster. And um, that'll, that, I know that's going to be great fun. So, and I'm just, I'm thrilled to be here to talk with you. So yeah, let's get started. Yes, thank you so much. Um, I am so excited to talk about um, As Long As I Know You, primarily. That's the uh, the memoir from the University of Georgia Press that came out last year. Yes, um, yes. It is a, it's a sweeping, searing, deep memoir um, dedicated to uh, your mother, yeah. um, who died just months before her 100th birthday. Right, right. right. Yeah. Um, 
so uh and this this covers i mean that's 100 years is a, is a long time oh, yes. um on some level it's kind of arbitrary but uh it's uh when when i saw the dates i was like whoa <laughs> that's not everybody gets there um and so uh and we will get to to sort of more of like the the recent um events in in history cuz she did live through the first part of the pandemic um but one of the things I'm very curious about is um, 1921 till 2020 is a colossal amount of changes for for humans. Um, it's it includes a war. It includes um, includes the Great Depression. It includes um, the advent of technology and the potential takeover of technology. Um, and I'm I'm wondering as you are as you're writing this, as you're editing it, as you're putting it together, um, how how you think about those huge changes in relation to your your mother's life, like having lived through all of that. And if you ever talked to her about any of those things. Well, yes. And er, earlier in our relationship, um, well, first of all, for readers, I think they need to know that my mother and I had kind of a troubled relationship, a very volatile relationship that that led to um, a, a difficult adult relationship. As adults, we found a way to be civil to each other, but we were not close. And so when she, my father died, the, as often happens in those couples, the veil of frailty is pulled away then. And it was revealed to my family, my siblings and me, how much she was reliant on my father and how much he had been covering some early stage dementia. And that meant we were going to have to, especially me as the oldest, we've talked about the role of the oldest, was going to have to, I was going to have to step up my siblings were going to have to step up. We were going to have to figure out care plan. And that whole responsibility meant that I had to overcome a lot of um, repressed animosity and kind of rework or work through the volatility in our relationship, which was pretty well trans. It was scripted by then. We knew how to push each other's buttons. And that's the thing. You can be raised in a really loving family. I think I had a good, solid family, good, solid upbringing. But I also know that even in those loving families, you can have that that um, uh, volatility that people just don't find each other. They just don't. They're at loggerheads for whatever reasons. So that's the background that I think to kind of launch and then to answer your question. One of the most important things I did in writing this, I was, as I was caring for her, I was in a process I call kind of anticipatory grief. So I was writing as I went along because I knew she was old. She was very elderly and, you know, she was, I was going to lose her. So I wanted those notes. I wanted that. So in some ways I was very close in the writing. But in other ways, for the first time, Megan, I had to go back and do deep research. I had to look at photographs of she was, uh, you know, a child of the Depression. I looked at pictures of not just her, but of the backgrounds in her childhood photographs. There were not many, but there were some. And looking at the backgrounds gives you that whole sense of how great the poverty was then. 
and how her life must have been looking at the one room schoolhouse picture that she attended um uh researching you know she didn't finish high school she kind of ran away or escaped she went to chicago she worked as a maid for a short while and then as a uh she called it being a governess but then she became a nanny what would have been now called a nanny and honestly those things started to draw a picture she came back to take care of her father who was an alcoholic who had a very serious car accident came back to the home the home township here in michigan and uh and then she also went on to this i think is one of the most amazing things she it was just before world war ii and there was a huge call for nurses because so many nurses had had um uh, entered into the wax or waves, you know, they'd, they'd gone into military service in some way. And so there was a shortage of nurses and they were looking for nurses. And she lied about having a high school diploma. She taught herself enough algebra to get through the, the entrance exam, uh, which was the big thing that she didn't, she couldn't teach herself easily. So that was the big hurdle for her, at least in her stories. And um, and she got into the nurses training program in Manistee, Michigan, and, um, and became what was then called um, a licensed practical nurse or registered nurse. And that gave her, I think, some of her very, very happiest years. Uh, and then she, you know, she married my father two years out of the war and he was i i think he was always a very good man but way too quiet for her extroversion <laughs> you know yeah. So, yeah but what i found going back looking at that decade oh my gosh megan was how much very likely trauma and perhaps even some ptsd that she had suffered i found out that there she had lost a little brother in early childhood that she had um, suffered two fires, two very destabilizing fires in the family. One, the house burned, and then the other, a barn burned, killing many of their their um, essential animals. So there was an, an immense amount of trauma that I think led to a distrust of the world, a need to control the world, and therefore her children, and also a, a very um, a lack of understanding about how trauma might affect temperament, because she had a real serious temper or you know short fuse, as we would say today, and we never knew quite when that was going to rise. So all of that, that whole expanse, plus you know history. There's a as you said, depression, world war, rebuilding nations, um, the 60s. She has five kids. She's a farm wife in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's, there's a lot of, of that historical documentation that happens in, I think I've got it in two or three chapters. I finally decided I didn't want it to interfere with the current story, the story that I was telling in the present, but I want, I had to give it, as you said, you have to know the, the background. 
that's happening in order to understand what happened between us. So long story short, but yeah, there you go. I love that. Um, there's so many threads I want to pull on there. I think um, just as a snapshot, the what you said about looking at the background of the pictures, uh, and especially in the Depression era, that um, that is that is so true. And it's such, I feel like it's such a huge metaphor too, for how we understand a person, you have to look at their background. And which is, that's why I started with this question of um, almost a hundred years your mother lived. And it was some of the most volatile in history, I think, um, at least we have record of. Um, and just, and I mean, you know, this, this still recent memory, people are still living that, uh, were there for world war two and stuff, just knowing that seemed like the end of the world for so many yeah. people. Oh yeah. And they, I mean, when she talks about, um, and this is earlier in, in the, in the book, she talks about the Pearl Harbor bombing at the beginning of World War II, which really launched our entry into World War II, the U.S. entry into World War II, and about how when they were listening to it, the news was coming around the neighborhood from people who had radios, and they had a radio in their house. You know, this is pre-TV, pre-anything, and they gather around the radio, and I remember from my very early childhood visiting my grandfather, this big old radio, you know, they're the size of, they're the size of dressers, you know, they're, 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 they're huge. And um, she said, gathering around and listening to the news and knowing, knowing that it was really, they didn't know exactly what it meant or how fast things would happen, but knowing that it was really, really bad. And her brother, my uncle Bob, then within within weeks um, signed up to, and he was sent to Guam. He was sent to the Asian or to the Pacific arena. And um, my father eventually went, he, he, they weren't married yet, but they, my father went to um, the European and African arena. So I, this is all stuff I knew tidbits of, but I really had to consolidate it when I wrote the book because that you are so right. The background gives you the insight. Yes. And I think it, it's, it does, it doesn't excuse, but it can explain uh, all of these things that feel terrifying about our parents when we're children and that we won't understand until we're adults, of course. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I loved following this journey uh, from, from your side, as you, um, as you're walking uh, your mother through uh, dementia um, until passing away, and um, um, of course, I that's that story. It's it's horrible. Dementia is an awful thing to have to watch somebody go through. But your part, I and I didn't realize that this is what I was was I what I was coming along for the ride with as a reader was the compassion and the love you get to mm-hmm. for your mother. Yeah, yeah. And, but I, I love that, that, that it's a journey because um, something that you had started with, and I'm so, so, so glad that this came up, is the, uh, that you, you, you did not have, uh, you didn't go into this with a like wonderful kittens and moonbeams relationship um, <laughs> with your mom. Yeah, far cry. Yeah. And that is something that, that I will commend readers for, uh, for re- to this, this book, um, because 
it's something that we don't really name in our culture that much is the, the, the fact that mothers and daughters can have difficult relationships. Oh yeah. It's a, it's supposed to be a sacred relationship and on some level it is, but that doesn't mean you're going to like each other. You know, it just doesn't mean, and, and it's almost, um, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's travesty or sacrilege or something to say, I, I was not a good friend with my mother. And, you know, it, it just, it's just so utterly wrong to say that, that um, in fact, I will tell you a snippet of a story. I have, I've written a lot of books and I've gotten a lot of mail and people have asked forthcoming questions and, and it's always an interesting interaction. I um, there was an interview in the Glen Arbor Sun about as long as I know you and about, and I, in it, I said this, I wasn't close to my mother. We didn't always get along. And, and I got my first hate mail from that. It was astonishing to me, you know, that somebody called, somebody wrote, actually wrote, it was on oddly enough, hotel stationery, but the, the letter was very much, you should never say anything bad about your mother. You should, you are an awful person for having put that in the press and blah, blah, blah. It was, so you are so right. I think even though people respond to this idea that you can have a progressively renewed relationship, even in, in my mother's age, they, they, they are also cautious about what you are saying that we, you know, should we acknowledge that we don't always like each other? You know, should we say that we didn't always get along, that our personalities were different, or should we acknowledge anything about that? It's you're right. There's a silence. Yes, and it's it's almost this. There is this reactivity if you are to say, as especially I think as a daughter, especially as as a, a like a woman to woman, you're supposed to revere your mother. You're supposed the mothers are saints lifted up as saints in this culture. So if you do have an issue, um, if there is a difficulty in relationship with your mother, it's almost like it's the daughter's fault. And um, that sounds like that's kind of what, you know, you should, you should never speak bad about your mother. It's like, it's you, you're the problem is kind of how that kind of plays out when you admit that, well, we just didn't, we didn't mesh personality wise. And that's, and it, that's and not even a blame. I think I say in the book at one point, I say, um, she was a mother of no, and I was a child of will. And I, I don't think that was ever easy. I mean, I will not excuse myself entirely. Um, because, because I, I think I gave her a run for her money on so many levels, but I, I do think that there were also extenuating circumstances on both sides that just prevented us from finding each other. It was, yeah, it's just really a tough one. So in answer to that, you're right. Yes. And I love the way that, that, that is such a, uh, it's a, such a gentle statement that gives people permission. The, we just didn't find each other. Mm -hmm. I love I love that because then there's not this, this harsh blame or whose fault is it? Or what did you do wrong? Or how did you, how did my mother fail me or all of us? Th those things are true. We are, we're failed by our parents. That's just what happens. And we, um, fail, and we fail as children sometimes. Too, we, you know? Yeah, yes, totally. And just the, that there can be difficulty because we don't find each other. And I like that this on some level, even though, um, even though dementia, uh, 
is really characterized by the loss of of, of everything, really, that this on some level is a story of finding. And um, and just the, um, I'm not going to ruin this for readers. I want readers to to get the significance of as long as I know you. That just, that I, that's why I'm not going to ruin it because it really, it hit so hard. Because you kind of think, oh, if it's a book about dementia, yeah, that makes sense. But there's so much more significance in the title. Um, and I won't, so spoiler alert, I will not, I won't spoil that, but I wanted it's to, okay. I think it's out there. So I just, I, I just love that. Like that, that's the anchor. And so there is this finding in so much loss that is, that is that dementia brings, um, not to the, the person, but to the, to the relationship. And I, there's a part in there where you talk about there's that there's that clear line, as long as I know you, and even that gets fuzzy. How do we know? And that was one of my questions uh, for you: is how do we know what we know about a person, and how how do we how do we come to that knowing? And I, and through your experience with your mother, there were times where you maybe weren't sure does does she know me? Does she? What does she remember? And then times where you're like, I'm pretty sure she doesn't know me. Um, and I just, I want to kind of explore that uh, as long as I know you, like what, what does knowing mean? How do we get there um, in the context of we just never found each other? That's, a, that's a really, really interesting question. Um, I th knowing involves a kind of recognition and it's an interior recognition, I think. And I don't know that there are always words for it. I don't, I don't know that. I mean, I think in families, there are places where it's beyond language. And uh, that's especially true between parent and child. And I'm not talking necessarily about mothers and daughters, fathers and sons. Fathers and daughters too have that unique part of it, but I think it's a, a a recognition of oh, as much as I know you, this person knows me. So it's a, a common, um, uh, like the Venn diagram. It's like the overlapping little little place in the middle where identity rests. And if I and I think identity is as much knowing her as knowing myself, and. So when, when um, at the end, there's this moment when I know she doesn't know my name anymore, that, that, that horrible visit and on, her, on her 99th birthday um, that, that is so wrong because it's COVID. And I know that she doesn't know who I am, but she calls me honey. And in that moment, I know she recognizes that I'm part of, of the family, of the unit, of the, the tribe, if you will, the, 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 the group of people that are central to her identity. And so that knowing is part of, of identity then, you know, it's, and the, the honey, and I'm not a person who likes to be called by endearments at all. I, I I usually will ask people not to do that if they start to call me by endearments, and but with her, I knew it was sort of like the um, it was a gesture of inclusivity, which I think is also about knowing. 
that we are included with each other. You, we have a, we have agreed to a relationship, and um, so that I think is um, where the vagaries of knowing kind of met their limits, but also there was still enough recognition there that the the knowing was enough in place for me to felt seen. Yeah. Yes. To feel seen. That, oh, I, that was, a, that passage was that the, the honey, I mean, I just relate to so much. I don't like terms of endearment, um, especially outside of uh, like, just when they come out of nowhere. And, um, but and that one was. They're so often patronizing, you know, yes. even in <laughs> yes. a family. Yeah. Yes. Honey. Yeah. You know, and especially from older to younger, right? That whole, right. right. Kind of, oh, if we God. can't have power in the world, we'll have power over each other. Yeah, let me fix this for you, darling. You know that. <laughs> oh, yes, mm. yes, yes. Um, and that um, you set that passage up so well. The honey does not come out of nowhere. Right. Right. Even yeah, as even even through the nowhere of dementia, it mm-hmm. doesn't come out of nowhere. Thank you. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to look at it. Thank you, Megan. I loved that. It there were so many times where I felt kicked in the chest by this book in a in a very good way. I mean, um, there's uh, there's this passage that's actually related. I wrote this down uh, for a different reason, but I uh, think it's totally related here in the in the chapter called the cup. Um, this is the where the, for, for readers, I'll set this up. This is where Ruth, um, your mother is, is in her retirement home, reclusive, not really wanting to engage, not settling in, um, not really making home there. And there, uh, there's an activity at the, at the retirement home where, um, Susan, the director of activities has, uh, set up a little, um, gardening, if you will, (laughs) scenario where they're going to plant, sunflower seeds one sunflower seed in a styrofoam cup um and this passage says susan the director of activities at um manor gives directions first pass around the cups once in hand stare into it for a while this plain styrofoam cup it must be studied the curved white emptiness write your name on the rim For some, names never arrive. In that case, Susan is keeper of the names. If a name is lost, she will find it for you and help write it. Some folks know their names, but not what the white cup is. And the what to do about it is often pure guesswork. Some can't remember the way their hands should work. Some forget how letters work. For some, no problem. They help the others. Mom knows her name, writes it despite the uncertain surface. The name on your cup identification takes about 10 minutes. Mom is silent and staring. This can only get worse. And there is, there's so much here. And even reading this now, I'm realizing even, even more than um, the first time I read this. Um, the power of names is what stands out. Um, especially the, Susan is the keeper of, keeper of the names. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and there's always one of those people in in those activities who, you know, who says back, I don't know if um, that in that particular chapter, I think is probably ironic also in the fact that, I mean, you know, my mom is still able to identify who she is. She can't remember how to do things anymore, but she knows who who she is, but she can't remember her garden. You know, that tiny little cup is symbolic of their, these women, most of them were farm women who had these immense gardens and they had, or farms where they were out, you know, on, on long acres and working that, those fields. But um, now the cup, the little plant, the tiny little seed, one seed, that's, that's what they get. And that's the shard of identity for some of them. That's all they need. And so Susan keeping their name and giving it back to them, I think is kind of holy ground. Yes. I felt that as I read that. And that's Mm. uh, for me, it made me think of who am I the keeper of the names for? Oh, good question. Yeah. What a good question, Megan. And like, how do I, and it's, it's not just like people and not just, it's not just like, you know, people going through dementia or whatever. I have some um, people at my church who are getting into their uh, late eighties, but it's more about who, cause you had, and you had said this, the, the way that we identify ourselves is actually by the people around us. When you're, when you when your mother called you honey, it was, it was, that was an identification of this is kind of how I know who I am. This person is in this unit somehow. And I'm like, how, it just made me really, it really struck me as who, whose unit am I in and how can I be keeper of their names, their identities? Cause that's, it really made me rethink like, that's kind of what relationships are. Yes. Actually. Yeah. I think that's very true. You hold, you hold each other's experiences and for some, um, we are witness to each other's, perhaps our childhoods. And we hold in that witnessing, we hold each other, you know, we hold each other's identity. Um, there are certain stories that my sisters have of growing up that I, I don't have, or I, I lost and I have those for them as well. And I think this sharing of those is one of the ways that we say we see each other. You know, that we really, and that they felt, they feel more seen in the telling, which is why I think family stories are, are terrifically important. Um, even some of the sad ones, you know, you have, to, you have to be honest about those too. You have to go down those roads. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think uh, that in the in the gathering of, of the stories, I, it, it, I could sense there was a lot of going back through family history in that's behind this, um, this book, especially because I mean, 99 years is, is quite an astonishing amount of time to live through. That's, you know, you know, because this was the last decade of her life that this book actually covers almost 10 years. And you know that, I, I mean, everybody had, at that age, you are going to lose that person and probably sooner rather than later. There is no putting it off, which is why I was writing about her so much. But I also think that um, because we knew it was it was coming, it heightened the pressure 
not the pressure. It wasn't so much a pressure. That's not quite the right word, but it heightened the energy around seeing her and around being with her and about knowing that, oh my gosh, these are any time could be a last time. And, and not, you know, not having any clue physically, she wasn't really healthy, but the, the doctors would always say, and I, I loved this, they'd always say, well, her heart is strong. Her heart is strong, you know? And I'd, I'd go, yeah, I know that. I know that strong heart. No, <laughs> I'm aware. Yes. <laughs> Uh, that yes that that comes up um in the in the at the end is like that was yes her hardest song which was yeah tested by by your will as you say because you do bring up the dynamics of um this difficulty was was two-sided it was not just her not just you it was both and that um and, you know as someone who who also has had a difficult relationship with my mother, it really helped highlight uh, for me kind of where where are the places that I I really did try my mother's patience. Um, and as a child, I wasn't aware of it. I was a kid. I didn't know. And it took me on my own journey of kind of compassion for my mother and really seeing, oh, that's why she reacted that way. Even though as a kid, that was not that was not helpful. That was not great. Um, and that's so reassuring to hear you say that. And I, and I think that you, I, I'm so grateful. Thank you for reading it so deeply and with such, such intimacy for the moment that, that really affirms what I hope is happening with the book. So I, thank you. I can tell that we're, yeah, we probably, you know, the, the thing, uh, just a side tangent here, I did the thing about my mother and the dementia is that even as I'm losing her, and I'm finding her. Part of the reason I can find her is because she forgot so many of the troubled things that I did. I did, you know, she forgot that I wrecked the car. You know, she forgot things that she'd held against me for years. That you know, that were uh, you know, oh, you know, she she, you know, she couldn't even remember to tell me to get a haircut, which is one of her standard lines. Oh, you need a haircut, you know. Stand up, you know. She forgot the 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 hardest times, and but she all but but she remembered what she retained was that sense of, as you have pointed out, of affection and and community that we familial intimacy. She knew I was part of the, that, so that did not go away, and and it, you know yeah. So thanks for reading so beautifully. That's one of the reasons why this this book is it, for me was so hopeful. Um, obviously, when when we hear the diagnosis of dementia, um, Alzheimer's, things like that, we know as as the passage I just read, this can only get worse. Um, this isn't we don't we don't get out of this one, and so it can be like, oh, this is going to be a very depressing, sad story. And um, as you said, we do need to acknowledge the sad stories. But to me, it ends with hope because it ends with, in a way, you kind of did find each other. Oh, I, and, think, I think absolutely. That you know, the the last full chapter, my mother's country. I feel like we are we are on. You know, she's struggling, but we are kindred in a in that intimate, um, connected way, and and she is letting me take care of her. 
She is letting me take her to lunch. She is letting me find her Afghan, um, her throw. She's she's letting me. She she is now not. She's no longer fighting for her independence or criticizing the way I'm doing something. It is it is this one. You know, we are together. We are together. We have gathered. And I think that's um, where some of that hope is coming from. That, that, yeah. And it gave my friend hope too. I was able to share that, that sort of um, progression from the resistance to, uh, okay, I'll accept, but you got to do it this way to now we actually are just together. There's no more resistance. There's she, as you said, letting, she is letting you take care of her. My friend who is also taking care um, of, of his mother has, it's not so much his mother, it's his father who's resisting the, well, no, we have to do it this way. And we have to, we, so there's all kinds of dynamics there, but um, in sharing the, the progression of, you know, just keep showing up, just keep off, just keep, Saying, I'm here for this and getting to the place of truly fully loving and understanding your mother as much as one person can understand another um, has has been what has been helpful for my friend who's who's walking through this um, now with his mother too that's so um, it's so lovely and affirming of you to say that and I'm and I think you told me before that her his mother's name is Ruth also oh that's just it's uncanny. But I think that's, you know, that's what, when we talk about books and we talk about good books, I'm always grateful if somebody thinks it's a good book. But I also am acutely aware that I think almost every writer hopes in some way that their their work does book good, that their book does some good in some way. And I, when I talk about book good, it's like, I hope that there are people for whom this book can assist in their journey uh, to some sort of understanding between their parents or um, among among their their family. So for saying that, yeah. yeah, and it's done that for me. Even though um, I my uh, I'm not walking my either of my parents through um, dementia. Uh, they're um, in you know early 70s, and so they are still fairly independent. Um, and as and they. Are, are very, very sure. They, they assure me and my siblings that they are independent, but, uh, and they are. Um, but what this, what the, what, as long as I know you helped me walk through was the uh, difficulty in relationship with my mother, especially as uh, I think, especially as a daughter, especially as the oldest daughter too. Um, Cause I have, I have said many, I've had many of the same feelings and of, um, sort of this, uh, like, well, there's difficulty, but also like guilt ridden for not taking care of, or, oh, am I responsible? And all of that stuff that comes with being the oldest also, yes, yes, um, absolutely that you captured so well. And that it's just as, as someone who's reading this as, as someone who, who may eventually need to take care of, uh, either of my parents and being the oldest, um, just knowing that, it, Cause I know, I know I'll go there. I'll, I'll be the overly responsible one. And I'll also be the, uh, like, well, this is, yeah, we're, this is difficult. And potentially I'm doing, I'm starting out doing this more out of, um, obligation. Cause we don't really like each other, but 
we get to we get to find each other. So I think there are so so many things that this book can really help people walk through um, that are not immediately related to dementia or being a um, caregiver parent. Um, even though most most people do will and are experiencing being a caregiver of a parent, um, but it's also just naming that. Uh, yes daughters have difficult relationships with, yeah. with their mother. I think, and I think that, that naming that is really important. But I also think what you're saying about all the peripheral things that come to you being um, an oldest, like one of the things you don't think about is taking um, when your parent is frail enough that you have, you have to move them or they have to move and and you have to go yeah. through that process of clearing the house you know, how many, yes. how many, who needs three crock pots? You know, <laughs> yes. how did that even happen? Yes. Who needs three crock pots? Indeed. So we're, you know, we're, we're clearing our house and what we're encountering is, you know, some of it's the debris of a life, but it's also all of these insights into um, things that we didn't know. There's, there's all kinds of discoveries. And I know that I wrote about the dynamite, but I know, but yeah, that's a teaser, isn't it? Yeah. Everybody out there, the dynamite is for real. Well, sort of. And, and, um, but the thing, yeah, we kept we kept encountering and tidbits uh, that you you realize how much you collect over time that tells us who we are and all of that um, all the stuff of a lifetime that we often I mean I would say to my sister Mary Jo who of course we were doing this together I'd say what is what does this mean? Why did she save this? Why is this here? And, and, and we'd, we'd be so confused. And then, and then we go through boxes of papers, hoping we, you know, weren't throwing anything away. I found the title to the house in a bot in a pile of papers that was just like, Oh, if, you know, to lose something like that. So the it's chaos, but it's also insight that we're, we're getting as we, as we peel away these, as we delaminate their, their home. And that's a harsh word. I think maybe that's not quite the right word, but it felt like that. It felt like we were delaminating an identity and, and, and also having insight what's inside, what's underneath the layers uh, the, you know, that initial layer that you see, you know, you walk into our house and it was kind of the classic, old people's house with lots of little kitsch that she could not let go of because she remembered who gave it to her, you know, the sentimentality of that. And that's a tender thing too. Like how do you overcome the one sign, those signs of tenderness that don't mean anything to you, but somebody from her church gave it to her or somebody from her, um, uh, you know, her childhood or, or one of her children gave it to her and she can't let go. And that's, you know, that's, and that's looking inside underneath the, the layers. Yeah. So this is perfect. This keyed up a, a, actually a question I had about the chapter uh, started with the chapter dynamite, which again, 
another spoiler alert that I'm not going to ruin. It was so, that was so, oh, so many feelings in that. It was hilarious and infuriating and all of the things. Um, so I won't ruin it for readers, but it does make me wonder what, uh, as you're, as you're going through the chaos that, that is also insight. Love that. Um, is cause isn't that just life? Um, what, what surprised you the most about going through that house? What surprised you the most about that you learned about her or, or your parents, which is in some way your own past too, as you underwent the process of going through the, the, the chaos? Well, for one thing I learned, there were, I think maybe a half a dozen containers of cool whip and dairy whip in the freezer, you know, and I realized, yeah, in the freezer. And I, I couldn't, I could not figure this out, but it finally occurred to Mary Jo, my sister and I, that my mother was always on my dad about his sweet tooth, you know, that he had this sweet tooth. And we both went, look, kind of looked at each other and said, oh, the sweet tooth wasn't his alone. It was, you know, she was topping off everything with Cool Whip and Dairy Whip and, and, you know, and it's, of course, it's horrible for you. It's got all the crap, but, but. And, you know, and, and we found, you know, we went through recipes and we found the, you know, how when you have a collection of recipes of your favorites, the ones that were for the cakes and the cookies and the sweet things were the ones that were spotted and used and, and, you know, almost falling apart. Whereas the salad recipes were, those were crisp, you know. <laughs> I love that. I yeah. love that so much. <laughs> yeah, it's just really cool. And um, I guess the other thing going through her her um, jewelry, you know, my mom liked to dress well. And we thought that we all, both of us remembered there were some nice pieces there. We thought, well, we need to get those straightened and separated for the grandkids and make sure that they're passed on. And when we actually opened those jewelry boxes and looked at things, you know, it was mostly costume jewelry and there were just a couple of little pieces. Um, and, and then what we both discovered is the jewelry that she, the nicer jewelry she had was jewelry that we had given her that she rarely wore, you know, that she, you know, she, I don't know if it was because she was, um, saving it, which is big thing with her was saving it, um, saving the, the jewelry. Can you imagine? Yeah. And, um, or if she just liked the tacky stuff better, I mean, that's hard to tell, but, but anyway, so it was, it, you know, clearing that house was, that was an adventure that we will, we will never forget. And it was also heartbreaking because it meant that she was never going back. And that was another ending that she had to let go of because through the first few years that she was in assisted living, we, we really thought, and she thought she could go back. But, you know, when the first year when we were trying to keep her at home, and this is the real difficulty, we were trying so hard to keep her at home and there was just no, way she could accept the help 
that we kept hiring. She, she fired three people or told them not to come back. I shouldn't say she fired them. She just said, we, I don't need you and don't come back. And, and she did need them, but you know, she couldn't remember if she was incontinent or she couldn't always remember how to get to the bathroom in time. And those kinds of things were pretty hard to take. Yeah. That was another, um, a piece of this that I've shared with my friend who's, um, that, that very thing is what is happening now with his parents that they would, you know, help would come. He and his, his brothers are, are sending aids or you know, people to, to care, you know, home health care aids and things. And um, because it's their house, they think they don't, they think they don't need the help. They, you know, they're kind about it, but they send people away and, but they do need, they do need the help. And so it's just the, the parallels are just so it's so, powerful it's very cliche but it's so powerful to say that knowing you're not alone is so helpful that's one of the that's one of the powers of this of this book i think there's so many ways that that like as i i experienced oh i'm not alone in that um you know i i don't i don't have the the you know happy hallmark um relationship with my mother and then as my friend, it's just this, these exact things are happening, sending people away that they actually need and um, right, having right. To go through the chaos of the and house. I'm sure, and, yeah, I'm sure that we are going to be as resistant to losing our independence as they are. I, I, found, I found that every time I watched her give something up, I thought, oh, someday this could be me. This could, I could be, somebody could be doing this for me. And I, I mean, I don't know that I will be any more um, easy than, than she was. I don't know. I don't know that. I hope that um, her resistance was in part from her fears and that I can maybe see that and do something about that. But I also suspect that losing your independence um for example, there was a chapter in the book that I had to cut. It just didn't fit. And it's about, it happened. My youngest sister, we elected her to tell my mother she had to stop driving <laughs> because my, my youngest sister is really my mom's favorite. And so, uh, we told Pat, we said, Pat, you, you're the one who has to do this, you know? You tell her she has to stop driving. And that is so hard. You know, think of it. You're driving, especially in America, is the way you get independence. You know, it's the way you practice your your freedom is the, the darn call, you know. So um, that was that was a moment. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. And um, that so that's just. I, I thought of that too when I was reading it. Like, what what will I be like if I'm someone who mm-hmm. is continually being asked to give up things that were who, who I was? How right. I how I got around being able to get around just basic getting around my my own house even. Right. Um, exactly. How will I? How will I be when that happens? Um. I'd like to 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 end with because I we could talk about this all day and and um there will be an op- another opportunity to talk about the the long fields which is um your forthcoming yeah. book for 
Bridgestone Press, so we're we'll be pressmates there. Um, and uh, I'm happy about that. Yes, so that's that's how that's how we are we are connected, yeah. and now in so many more ways with the book. Uh, as long as I know you, this passage is it's towards the end, very end of the book, and it really it really stood out to me because it captured it captured something I think a lot of people were feeling about uh, the very beginning of of the pandemic. Um, so I'm going to read this final passage here. But in the end, it does not matter if she died of old age or of COVID-19, because in some ways, she died of COVID-19 anyway. This is not a claim I make easily, but here's a truth we all in our entire nation now live with. The enforced isolation, loneliness, overworked staff, nurses, and all those aides, the closure of hospice and all that went with it. But most of all, the fact that we could not be with her all contributed to her failing and to her dying alone. She may not have been a recorded victim, but she was a victim of the cultural pandemic, that aloneness in death. We all were and are. And yes, in this time of pandemic, millions of us throughout the country will hold some version of this terrible contradiction in our hearts until we too die. So even as there, this is kind of what our, I think our interview has been, our discussion has been these two things. There is horrible sadness in this um, progression, this illness as, as dementia. And then the, the wrapping of that in this intense time of isolation that um, the COVID-19 pandemic imposed upon us all. And so many people had to die alone. And the discussion of identity as the people that are in your life. And that is what I think this book captures so well is it's both. It's not either or it's always, it's always both. And of course this, we could talk forever. I could talk. I'll say I talk forever, ever, forever and ever about this book. But um, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wish I did? No, but I want to respond a little bit to your last comment. I love that you read that passage because it gets at, you know, the book is intimate, it's deeply personal, but what I hope underneath it is um, some consciousness raising about healthcare in this country right now, and particularly healthcare for the elderly, because there are some 77 million boomers moving through the demographic of this nation's population right now. And I notice it particularly the pressure on the millennials right now who are facing, you know, adult care, and they're also still raising their families. And they are, the sandwich is, is that is not a myth for them. They are caught between these two and are in many, many cases, our care for the elderly is uh, compromised deeply. And it was compromised perhaps more than any other um, slice of the population during the pandemic. It really showed up then. I feel like aides and nurses who are in um, elder care, geriatric care, are there you know, they are to be sainted as far as I'm concerned. 
but I also want them to be um, well-trained, well-benefited, well-paid. I, I want that profession to be, and it's not just because I know I'll get older, it's because it's going to be necessary for this nation to keep, to keep People, I mean, this is one of the places where people can truly be employed in a somewhat rewarding career if they, um, if we, if we will support that. So that profession to me is um, a political hot point that we need to be supporting the, that kind of um, career building. And we need to be aware of what it is, what does it mean when a nation does not take good care of their elders and doesn't have that rapport and respect with the aged? And um, and I I just feel like there was a disservice. It couldn't have been, perhaps it couldn't have been helped during COVID. It tested the limits of that profession right down to the wire. Many people left that field, and yet that field is one of the places where I think we can look into our hearts a little more and say, you know, are we taking care of the children? Are we taking care of the elders? You know, and and in doing so, do we then allow those generations in the middle to live their lives wholly and and to live be productive citizens? You know, that yes. Yes, that passage where where your sister Pat said we're going to make this decision because it will keep pe- it will keep the rest of us in the family contributing to society and being productive and that is no small matter as someone who is a millennial um uh, and my my parents are not quite at the age of needing care or at the stage of needing care yet but many of my friends who are slightly older than me but many of my friends are and we and or we're seeing that coming and we are like, what do we do? We still have our families. We still have our little ones to take care of and how, and also our lives. So it's so healthcare is, I think this book could be very helpful in changing the conversation around, um, well, the healthcare system's broken and let's try to, you know, fund it better. And more about this is, this isn't just about how do we get more nurses? It's about everybody all the generations living the lives that they want to while whatever, wherever they are in that sandwich and that tsunami coming of boomers um, who are, who are my parents. And I think if we change that conversation to that, um, to more about families and about how do people live their lives um, in a, in a productive way while honoring the 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 aged honoring yeah, that that absolutely. i mean mm-hmm. and absolutely. caring for children yeah. and ourselves yes that and i think it's i mean we I, the people who have experienced caring for their parents will i i've heard them all say like the health care it was such a struggle oh, to get good health care and and the bureaucracy that surrounds it is i think is designed to weed people out it's designed to discourage and and it's no wonder that so many people um elders die and and uh, you know without without the support systems that could have made their passing 
so much easier and could have allowed their families some ease in that transition, which is not easy, but the ease of just being with that person instead of worrying about that person falling. That's a, you know, that's part of the story. So yeah, you, Megan. Yeah, you will. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Um, there's, there's so, so many things that, uh, so many pieces that this weaves in. So I want to, I want to let readers know that this, if you don't think you can relate to caring for a parent with dementia, then there's still something here for you because, um, (laughs) I, I have not cared for a parent with dementia. Um, but I actually know, uh, three people who have my sister included, um, her mother-in-law. So Sure. So that's nobody's uh, untouched by that right now. We live we live long now because we've had early childhood. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us have had some pretty good health um, guidance as we grew, and so we're going to live a little bit longer than than maybe the system can bear as we've created it right now. So we need to think about a lot about how. We want to care for our elders and how we want to address that as we age. So it's, it's yeah. And it's also, there's a lot of um, questions about love, conscience, guilt, wonder, you know, all that's wrapped up in it. You know? Yes. All the questions of um, caring for, for a parent, especially um, one who you may not have had the best relationship with. Um, and and as someone who uh, who yourself did not want children as um, as I I did not, and yet there there's there's no escaping caretaking. It would seem uh, there's no escaping caregiving. Um, that and I think that just in the in the background of wow, someone who uh, who didn't didn't want to be a mother now providing kind of mothering care for your own mother. Yes. Yes. Um, So I I don't think it necessarily demands that you have children in order to mother. Well, I think mothering is, this is something that is a practice one assumes given certain circumstances. And so we're mothering our parents sometimes. So that's another aspect of it. Well, I really, yeah, I really, I really appreciate this conversation. I think it's just been joyous. Me too. Thank you so much for joining me, Anne Marie. And we will, um, we will be back when uh, the Long Fields comes out. Uh, I believe you said in August. So um, stay tuned, everyone, for for the next. Uh, and I've I've started to read part of it, so I can say that um, it it is. I will be delighted to have another conversation uh, with Anne-Marie Oman. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Megan. It was a real pleasure. I mean that. Yes, likewise. (laughs) 